This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This is part four of the On Air Memoir Writing Workshop and I'm Stephanie Fruin. In 2019, I gathered around a very small table various groups of strangers who wanted to start writing their memoirs, or at least writing some of their personal stories for their families to one day read. They were generous enough to allow me to record them reading their stories and to share them on air with listeners like you. Given the current situation of COVID-19, I can't see me sitting around a table with workshop attendees for quite some time, so I thought I would conduct my workshop over the airways. The world might be in lockdown, but our stories are not. For many, the idea of writing a memoir seems arrogant, and the response I mostly get from people when I ask them if they'd consider writing down their life stories is, who'd be interested in reading about my life? I've done nothing interesting, nothing important. I'm no celebrity or sports hero. But I think they're wrong. I believe every life is interesting and committing that life to paper or some digital format to be forever remembered has a part to play in conserving our history for generations to come. Now more than ever, recording our history is incredibly important. We must make available for our children and their children to come information about our lives, lifestyles, health and habits, for who knows what clues lie in these stories as to what is to come in the future. So over this strange and uncertain COVID-19 time, I'll take you through the steps to get you writing your memoir. So far on your memoir writing journey, in part one you've written about your name, and in part two I had you writing about a turning point in your life. And for part three we examined the importance of language and style to storytelling, and the topic I gave you was a family holiday. This time, I want you to consolidate those thoughts on your next topic, my first car. Some of you may not have ever owned a car or even learnt how to drive, and that in itself is a story. Tell us why. But if you are a car owner and driver, tell us about the first car you ever owned. What did it symbolise to you? How important was it to you personally, to your lifestyle? Maybe you needed it to go to work every day to earn a living. Or did it provide you with a means to escape, get away from life or a situation? What kind of car was it? Did that even matter to you? Whatever the situation, enjoy taking the time to tell your story. Remember, your story shouldn't be too long. No more than 750 to 1000 words. By giving yourself a word limit, you'll stick to the story, you'll get rid of the waffle. Once you've written your story, then read it out loud. That's the best way to pick up mistakes and edit it. There may be some of you, when you're done, you'd like to send it to me for me to have a read, read for you and offer some feedback. Then by all means, email it to me. My email address is mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. Coming up are examples of stories with the theme My First Car, written and told by attendees of one of my workshops. So have a listen and you will see that every story is different. I'll have a different topic for you next time and we will also look at the importance of tone or mood to storytelling. So until then, get writing.
My name is Judy and this is my tale to tell. My first car. I got my first proper job when I finished high school in 1984. Dad bought me a motorbike to make the 85 kilometre commute from my home to my live-in position on a farm in Windwhistle. It was a good plan, being cheap to run, but unfortunately the motorbike seemed to think it was a little too far. I remember several occasions where it would just die a few kilometres short of my destination and I'd have to push it the rest of the way. There were no cell phones to call for help in those days. When I started my degree at Lincoln College the following year, I soon grew tired of getting cold and wet during the daily 80-minute round trip. Luckily, Dad took pity on me and bought me a Morris Oxford. It was old, but cheap at $400. It was a bit of a tank compared to most cars around at the time, definitely lacking in the bells and whistles that we take for granted today, or even back then. It didn't even have power steering. But it kept me warm and dry, and being very practical, I didn't much care about anything else. I joined a carpool with some fellow students, each of us taking turns at driving. It worked out quite well, though I was more studious than my friends, and occasionally I'd be left stranded when they decided they'd had enough for the day, and I'd have to hitchhike back to town. That was a new experience for me. I remember the first time. I didn't quite know what to do and was a bit too shy to stick my thumb out. One of my lecturers slowed right down, almost coming to a stop, and then sped away. At the time I was sure that he'd changed his mind when he saw who it was, but I suspect it was just my insecure thinking, and more likely, he just wasn't quite sure if I was actually hitchhiking. I soon learned to make eye contact and stick my thumb out. We'd often be running late in the mornings. On one occasion, I was racing along on Dean's Avenue, by Hagley Park. I wasn't speeding, but I definitely was driving too fast for the icy conditions, as proved by what happened next. One minute I was worrying about being late for my lecture, and the next we were spinning in circles. They say your life flashes before your eyes in moments like that. I wasn't aware of that, but it was like I was watching it all happen in slow motion, while I gripped the steering wheel with no clue what to do. It felt quite surreal as we spun in circles with cars magically going all around us, like some sort of choreographed dance. By some miracle, we didn't hit any other cars. On eventually coming to a halt, the boys were roaring with laughter, but I was shaking in my boots, terrified to continue driving, and yet I had to. I set off again, albeit much more carefully. Lesson learnt. I remember I was still shaking some 30 minutes later when we eventually got to Lincoln. On finishing my degree and landing a full-time job, I decided an upgrade was in order. I took out a bank loan to buy something that could tow a horse float. I was a keen rider in those days and was looking forward to getting back to competing my horse after four years of study. I carefully researched and bought a falcon ute for the grand sum of $5,000. I subsequently found it wasn't quite as practical as I thought it would be, and things would get very wet despite the cover on the back. I remember a funny thing happened after buying the ute. I suddenly started to notice utes everywhere. I later learned that's a trick of the mind, sometimes called blue car syndrome. The explanation goes something like the brain receives so much information in every second it has to filter out things that it thinks are unimportant. You actually see a version of reality, 
based on what your filters show you. It was many years before I got my own float, but I loved the freedom for the first time in my life of being able to hire a float, take myself and my horse anywhere I wanted to, after years of relying on the goodwill of others. My name is Heather and I have a tale to tell. My first car. I do not recall if my name was on documents relating to cars when I was married. I don't think I thought about it. Nonetheless, I drove constantly, buying groceries, plants and dropping off and picking up children. Some years into the marriage, we returned to England for the second time. My husband was English and had been yearning to return. He pressured me into buying a business while he set up his own with a man he knew. I had an issue with health at the time and my youngest child was four. So, knowing nothing about business, I was very reluctant. But needs must, and the first thing I required was a vehicle for myself. Fiat was offering low, low interest terms for a brand new Fiat, so we went there. I think two colors were available and I chose the jolly yellow one. It was a Fiat 127 hatchback. This was 1980. Eventually a business was purchased, a business I had no interest in, and it was some distance away in Worcestershire. We were in Gloucestershire in the Cotswolds. It was a village general store selling food and almost everything else that someone might want, such as fishing gear and books and magazines. It was vitally important to have a reliable vehicle. However, the latter was not to be. Within days, the Fiat left me stranded in the evening in Fladbury because all its electrics had failed. I do not even recall what happened to rescue me. It was such a grim experience. My mind has repressed those details. The car went back to the cellar and he fixed that problem, but it left me nervous. The stresses were many and varied. I had to arrange for my older daughter, also a schoolgirl, to drop her young sister off to school and afterwards to pick her up again and arrange snacks. My husband, an architect, was too busy. But the Fiat's problems escalated and its automatic choke seemed to be the guilty party. It almost, almost never start and required old-fashioned methods like pushing it. My next-door neighbour, Clive, was a godsend in this regard. I was so embarrassed at becoming locally famed for being pushed along the high street of this Cotswold town, Winchcombe. I constantly complained to the seller but it never misbehaved in his care, or so he said. So I struggled along with the erratic Italian, which was my mode of transport. The Worcestershire villagers warned me that the River Avon flooded in winter, and you had to ford it. Crossing the river was the only way I could enter the village and my shop. I looked at the Fiat 127 with misgivings. Winter came, and getting to and from my business was always on my mind, what with snow and ice, the river, and the Fiat. 
I often passed hunters on horseback with their pack of hounds. The people Oscar Wilde had referred to as the unspeakable in pursuit of the uneatable. I would stop and slowly pass them. They would smile and wave at my caution at not frightening the horses. They might have imagined I approved of them. Eventually the river flooded as predicted. What to do? I really needed a Range Rover. I knew I must not let the exhaust go below the water, but I didn't know how deep the crossing would be. Praying fervently, I inched my way very, very slowly across the river. I was hardly breathing, intent on not causing any waves. It took me ages, but I eventually made it. This experience happened a few times and I grew in confidence. The Fiat did provide some moments of hilarity. To get from Winchcombe to Cheltenham, we needed to go over Cleve Hill. Cheltenham was a favourite place for shopping and this trip was often made with my two daughters in the car. They found it screamingly funny, and I did too, when on returning from Cheltenham, I had to keep the accelerator flat to the floor as the Fiat struggled over the hill. On one occasion, we were overtaken by a motorised wheelchair. The day came when I sold the business and the Fiat and divorced my husband. I enrolled in the Open University to begin with and over time entered other universities and acquired a degree and a graduate diploma and other extramural studies my life had changed completely. My name is Ruby and this is my tale to tell. My first car. The first car I ever drove belonged to my ex-husband. It was a yellow Mitsubishi Lancer with a manual stick. It was my mother-in-law who taught me how to drive. She was a very patient woman, and she helped me build the confidence to drive. No one followed any rules on the streets of Karachi, Pakistan, and that confidence really helped me handle the unexpected on the road. I became a really good driver. Getting a license was also very easy. No test was needed. I simply paid the fee and got my license. I was 24 at the time. I only drove the Lancer for about three years and then moved to Singapore, where I lived for about four years. The public transport system was so good that I didn't really feel the need to buy a car. In 2004, I moved to Sydney, Australia. It was a place where everyone had a car. One couldn't survive without it. My colleagues told me to buy a four-wheel drive. I didn't really know what that meant. I went for a test drive in a Toyota RAV4 and immediately realized that I could see much more of the road right in front of the bonnet. This was a completely different feeling. I liked it so much that I decided to buy the car. I didn't need to know anything else. It was a silver-gray car with automatic gears and three doors, a perfect size for me. The huge rush that came during my first drive from the dealership to my place was quite unexpected. I was free. I could go wherever I wanted and whenever I wanted, something that I had never experienced before. I had to do something with it, something adventurous. I decided to go for a bush adventure. 
During my Singapore days, I had travelled to many places and was used to wandering around the cities and fine places. I had never been into the bush before, but how bad could it be? After browsing through all the national parks in a book that I had bought just about a week ago, I settled for Yengo National Park. The name sounded mysterious and almost called out to me. My plan was to go to the national park and find the campsite. At the time that I thought that a campsite is called a campsite because I could rent a tent there. I imagined a tent keeper at the site handing out the access passes to the tents that I already set up with everything I needed, just like a hotel. All I had to do was bring food. I didn't even worry about the map or about telling my friends where I was going. I had wandered on the streets of many cities without a map, and as far as I was concerned, this was no different. It was New Year's Day, and I left home very early in the morning. My first stop was to get to Wiseman's Ferry. As I drove further and further away from the city, the scenery changed, the roads narrowed. There were more trees and fewer houses, and I felt like Alexander the Great on my way to exploring the new lands. My first barrier came when I arrived at Wiseman's Ferry and couldn't find the road to get to the other side of Hawkesbury River. I drove around for a while, up and down the road, but I couldn't see the path to the other side. After talking to the locals, I realized that there are such things as vehicular ferries that would get my car and me to the other side of the river. I got scared. What if I wanted to return and the ferries didn't operate at the time? Well, I took the risk and continued. After all, so many other cars that were crossing the river would be stranded too. By then, I was so far away from the city that even the air felt different. I could breathe easy, and I was full of inspiration with the sight of the forest and hills that were in front of me. After crossing the river, I continued towards St. Albans and made my stop for lunch at Settler's Arms Inn. Built in 1836, it is the second oldest pub of Australia that still has all the heritage of English settlers. I ended up staying there for about three hours, and by the time I left, it was way past 3 p.m. From the pub, I took the dirt road ahead. Leaving a cloud of dust behind me, I felt exhilarated, and in that moment, I took a sidetrack with sign for four-wheel drive only. Of course, it would have been good to know what four-wheel drive track meant, but who cared? As long as I had the vehicle that could take it, I would be okay. It didn't take long to get dark, and it didn't take long for me to get lost. My only hope was a miracle that would get me out of there. I feared the dark, and I didn't want to be alone in that scary place. In my desperation, I tried to accelerate, but my, got out of, my car got out of control. One side of the track was Rocky Mountain, and the other side a deep valley. I managed to stop my car with a screech just a few inches before hitting the rocks. I was running out of time and my desperation wasn't helping me. I let out a few screams and it made me feel much calmer. Then I remembered that I had seen a private property sign, so I went on to trespassing and crying for help. I was lucky to find a decent man who first looked at me like I was a lunatic and then explained the way out to me. It still took me about two more hours and few more cries of help, but I finally managed to find the road and get to a nearby town. It was around 8 p.m. It was around 8 p.m., 12 hours later, 
when I got my first proper meal and took a sigh of relief. Later in life, I also learned that campsites don't rent out tents. One has to bring one. Oh, how lucky I was not to find the truth at the time. Thanks. Tired of living life in black and white There's so much in between My name is Isabel, and this is my tale to tell. My first car. If I'd been born in New Zealand, I probably would have had my first car at the age of 15. However, I was born in the upstairs bedroom of a four-room rented cottage in Buckinghamshire, England. Dad wouldn't put a penny into a house because, as he said... He knew the value of money. He had lived through the Depression. He certainly wouldn't spend money on a car. The cottage was semi-detached in a long, narrow section. There was no room for a garage or to park a car, and parking on the road would not be welcome. It was too narrow. That's where children played, And the horse-drawn milk cart came each day, and if the horse stopped outside our place and dropped his bundle, we would collect the poo before someone else bagged it for the garden. Then there was the smelly cart that emptied our septic tank. It had an engine instead of a horse. It didn't come so often. We never knew exactly when he was coming. Someone else who called occasionally was the coal man. He was black with dust, wore a thick leather cape with a hood and hauled a sack of coal on his back and carried it down our narrow path to the coal bunker at the bottom of the section. He had an open lorry that the sacks of coal stood up on. The coalman just backed up to the sack hauled it on his back. No one in the road had a car. A few had bikes, but most walked, at least to the top of the road, where one could catch a bus. Dad always walked to work, Mum couldn't drive, and we always walked to school. To the shops, a few kilometres from home, or to the farm up the lane to get fresh milk when we needed extra or to the top of the road for fresh bread from the bakery. So I didn't have anything to do with cars in my homeland. I arrived in New Zealand, aged 19, still not able to drive a car, others, Kiwis, having learnt at 15. When I was 24, I had ridden in some cars, but never learnt to drive. At that time, I landed a job that came with a car. I couldn't say for sure why I needed a car, except that I was told I needed to collect the mail from the central post office, and my office was not in the centre of Auckland. My head office was in Wellington, so communication felt quite distant. I received a message to say that I needed to get my licence within two weeks because that was when I was being delivered a car. 
So I spent the next few days learning to drive around the streets of Auckland City with a patient instructor from a driving school. Parking next to a curb, backing into a park, backing up a hill, and a three-point turn were required to pass. That and a bit of common sense got me a licence. Ah, and the car that was delivered? Well, it was an Anglia with a slanting-in back window in an off-white colour. I found it easy to drive until I got to the central post office where there was angled parking, which meant I had to back out. The used car man who gave me the car explained everything about it except how the backing gear worked. So after collecting the mail, I sat for ages trying to find reverse. I began to panic and feel foolish at the same time. How could I get out of the car and ask someone to show me where reverse was in my car? They would have probably called the police. It wasn't my car. Finally, I discovered I had to lift up the gear stick and then pull it back. From then on, I never looked back, figuratively speaking. However, I never did have a car of my own for some years. My tale to tell, my first car. Writing about my first car I owned should be easy. I remember the little green Datsun I owned in 1970s like it was yesterday and all the great places we went in it. But then my husband burst my bubble. But that wasn't your first car you owned, he said. You owned that Hillman Avenger. Ah, yes, I did, I said, thinking that car must have been a really memorable experience. I can picture it, but I couldn't tell you how long I owned it or even any adventures we had in it. I might have to talk about cars I have driven and owned, not my first car, otherwise the story would finish here. I remember that the first vehicle I drove was my father's little blue Morris farm truck. My mother let me drive it home from school, the school bus, as we neared the entrance to our property, which was an elaborate entrance designed by my father. I didn't change down in time and I crashed into it. So my father had to do some reconstruction to his creation and fill the large dent in the truck with filler. I remember the Holden Tirana my mother bought for my sister and I to take into town to work each day as we lived in the country and the buses didn't run very frequently. And taking that car to Lake Ida with my girlfriend on my first date with my future husband, taking it to Nelson for the new year. But mostly I remember the little green Datsun I owned and all the fun times we had in that car. Perhaps it was because at that time in my life I was young and we would go on lots of trips with my boyfriend and his friends. I remember driving around the South Island in it after we were married. Even the accident we had at the corner of Rusley and Avonhead Roads when an elderly lady pulled out of a stop sign and hit us and as we spun round came to a neat stop between the power pole and a fence. These days the car would be written off but then back then they were repaired. Then after a few years I bought my Nana's Wolseley, which I owned for several years, even with its tricky gear change. 
My greatest love was my Mazda Capella I owned in the late 1990s. It had a spoiler on the back which I thought was very sporty and it was very low and sleek. My daughter wrote it off in the hills north of Christchurch and it was no more. Lucky no one was injured. Perhaps because I've never been one for needing to know what sort of a car a person drives that I don't really remember my first car. I always left that to my brother-in-law. We were going to my sister-in-law's for the evening as my brother-in-law was over from Korea where he lived for several years till his death. I said to my daughter-in-law who was meeting him for the first time, he'll want to know what sort of car you drive. Sure enough, not long after we arrived, I heard him ask her that very question. Now in 2019, I am the proud owner of an orange Honda Jazz, which in the words of my grandson is a beautiful car, Nana. Four seasons in one day Lying in the depths of your imagination Worlds above and worlds below My name is Julie, and this is my tale to tell. My first car. My first car was my pride and joy. It was solid and low-slung. Green car. I can imagine thinking it's a sporty model. Well, surprise, it was a Morris 1100. Described to me by my cousin as a tidy car with original factory paintwork. No rust whatsoever. A very straight body. I don't remember how many previous owners it had. I can't even remember why I was encouraged to buy this car from my cousin. I didn't know about the Lemon and Dog Guide. Not that this was a lemon or a dog. Crazy name for a book. It had a warrant for fitness and a rego. Everything worked, including the heating. It looked good and it was solid. Yes, a very solid car. A very solid car. It needed new seat covers. Other than that, a few hundred dollars and I had myself my very first car. I'd got to 18 without having to buy a car. A car for me was not a big deal. Cars are cars. As long as they go, they're trouble-free, I'm a happy person. I had plenty of practice driving. I'd been driving the tractor for years. Not that that really means much when you're driving on the road. My sister was brave enough to let me drive her car to Titap to catch the workers' bus when I did my year at Polytech, now called ARA. After the year, I needed my car to travel to my first paid work at Lincoln College, now Lincoln University. I was living at home and I drove most days, transporting Mary Ann, who was living in our cottage, to the Wool Research Organisation alongside the university where she worked. You will recall I said the car was solid? Well, that was important, as one particular foggy morning, a car decided to turn into the path of our moving car. My car got away with a few scratches because it was solid. The other car did not. There was also the morning when the car slid off the road in the snow. Who do you call? Yes, my dad. And he came and towed me out. Away we went on our journey even slower than before. Having a solid car is vital for your parents' peace of mind. That is the story of my very first car.
My name is Robert, and this is my tale to tell. My first car. Ever since I was little, I loved cars. I constantly played with the few toy cars I had and longed for the day when I would have one of my own. In my teens, we lived in Auckland, and my first job was in the city. So every day I travelled to and from work by trolley bus. I was still living at home and had to pay mum board, but had enough left over to save a bit each week, and finally I had enough saved. I was 17 when I bought my first car, and it cost me a lot, 20 pounds in fact. Now 20 pounds was a lot of money for a kid that only earned 5 pounds a week in 1966. So that represented a month's wages, probably equivalent today to around $2,700. There weren't many cars on the road in those days, and it was difficult to find anything good at a price I could afford. But we all know how young guys often tend to make decisions for the wrong reasons, and well before the brain had a chance to kick in. Unsurprisingly, that is what happened in my case. You see, Dad had an old 1939 Wolseley model 1885. He bought this around 1947, the year I was born. We were living in India then, where my parents were working, and at that time, just after the war, there were very few cars available to buy. So Dad ended up with this car, which he faithfully kept on the road until we left India at the end of 1963. I really liked this old car. I thought it had lovely, graceful lines to it, and its rather pedestrian but comfortable rate of travel over the notoriously bad Indian roads was all part of the charm. So when I saw one advertised in the paper, I knew I had to have it. I bought it on one visit late in the evening without even taking it for a test drive. Now, you would be right in thinking that not everything was tickety-boo with this car, and it wasn't. But what did I care? I just wanted it. If I had had any sense, the alarm bells would have sounded when the seller wouldn't let me drive it, but insisted on driving it home for me instead. I was so excited with my purchase, I couldn't wait until morning to check it out properly and take it for a drive. Well, I looked all over it, giving it a few reassuring strokes and pats, then got in, savouring the smell and feel of the old leather seats and settling down to enjoy my first drive. I turned the key on, pressed the starter button, and wow, it started right away with a lovely roar from its six-cylinder engine. I couldn't have been happier. So, down with the clutch pedal and into first gear, I slowly eased it out onto the road. Now, the steering was fairly heavy as there was no power steering, but that didn't faze me as the car had a big steering wheel, which made it easier and sort of compensated for this. Out onto the road gently and off on a drive around the neighbourhood. I was really enjoying this. The car sounded great. It was comfortable and even the slightly oily smell brought back many happy memories driving in Dad's old car back in India. I was as excited as a two-year-old at Christmas and had all these visions of me driving around with my mates, maybe even picking up the odd girl. No, snap out of it. My drive was going very well. I had taken a longish drive around the easy roads of our suburb, Mount Eden, and ended up at the top of the hill where our street began. 
With little traffic around, there was no waiting to turn into our street, and I headed for home. All was going well. The road was fairly steep, but I had driven it many times in Dad's Austin, Cambridge, so no worries. Or so I thought. Just before our street flattened off at the bottom of the hill, there was a stop sign at a busy intersection. So I proceeded to gently press the brake pedal, preparing to stop. Well, hello. There was no one home in the brake department. Try as I may by pumping away, nothing happened. I was too inexperienced and silly to try the handbrake. Panic began to set in, and the faster I was travelling, the greater the fear. My life flashed before my eyes. Here in my moment of joy and happiness, I was going to smack into a car crossing in front of me, and my life would come to an abrupt and bloody end. Perspiration was pouring off me. My knuckles were white as I desperately clutched the steering wheel. The sensation of serious bowel loosening was already happening, and there was nothing I could do. My speed was increasing by the second, and I knew it wasn't going to end happily. No seatbelts in those days. So I just hung on and hoped for the best, and with eyes half closed, sailed rapidly through the crossing. Not a car in sight. Wow. I let the car slowly roll to a halt, and I spent quite some time coming to grips with what had just happened, my hands shaking the whole time. And it at last dawned on me why the seller wouldn't let me drive it home. Fortunately, home wasn't far away, and I very carefully and gently drove the old car home, where it stayed until I could afford to take it down to the local garage to be repaired. I learned some valuable life lessons that day, and any thought that I was bulletproof disappeared instantly. My name is Karen, and this is my tale to tell. My first car. In the late 1980s, when I was 19, a new driver's licensing system was about to be introduced, where you would have to get a learner's licence, then a restricted licence, before you could sit for a full licence, which is the system in place today. I didn't have a car, I didn't have access to a car, and I couldn't afford to buy one, so I thought I'd better get my full licence before the rules changed, making it much harder to get one. I found a driving instructor who took me for driving lessons once a week in her manual car around the central city during my lunch hour. After 13 lessons, she decided I was ready to sit my driving test. I think she took all her students to the same police station to sit their test, and they probably trusted her judgment as I got my licence first try. So after only 13 hours in total behind the wheel of a car, I was now a fully licensed driver. Whoa, scary. Now I can see why they were changing the rules. In the next few years, I drove a car only a handful of times, and no way did I feel confident behind the wheel. I was saving to go overseas, and I couldn't afford to buy a car, so I bought a Nifty 50 from Casbolt's Honda, and voila, I had wheels. That Nifty 50's tank cost about $1 to fill, and it took me everywhere I needed to go. The longer the ride, the worse my hair looked when I took the crash helmet off. Nothing a bit of zhuzhing couldn't fix, though. One day the nifty conked out, and thinking it had broken down, I tried over and over to start her up, then I realised it was out of gas. I loved my nifty 50, and we went many places together in rain, hail and shine. It was a bit dangerous though, she didn't go quite fast enough to keep up with the traffic. 
her top speed was barely 50 kilometres per hour, so I drove in the cycle lane, all the while watching out for drivers in parked cars who sometimes opened their car doors without looking, nearly taking me out. It was a bit grim riding in the rain too. Waterproof trousers and a full raincoat were required, and we skidded on the white lines when the road was wet. When I went overseas, I lent my Nifty 50 to a friend, and eventually I sold it when I got back. When I met my husband John, he had two cars, a gold Celica, which he called the Chariot, and an old orange Toyota Corolla called Bessie. By the time my 24th birthday rolled around, I was engaged to John, and for that birthday he gave me my first car. Dear old Bessie, the orange Toyota Corolla was now mine. Before long, I got my confidence driving Bessie regularly, and she might have been old, but she was reliable, and I don't remember her ever breaking down. We didn't go on any memorable trips together in Bessie. We had the chariot for those, but Bessie always got me safely from A to B. Sometimes John left me cute little notes tucked under Bessie's windscreen wiper. I'd drive her to badminton club nights on Thursdays and Sundays and park her on the street near the Polytech gym where our club was based. John would drive the chariot to badminton as he usually worked late and we would meet there. One Thursday night I left badminton and walked to where I had parked Bessie. I looked around. Had I really parked her there? The parking spot was empty. I called John to check he wasn't playing a prank on me. No, he hadn't driven her away, and we realised she must have been stolen. I called the police and reported her missing, and a few days later they called me back. They had found her dumped in Worsley's Road in Kashmir. The insurance company wrote poor Bessie off. I was allowed to go to the wreckers yard to collect any belongings before they did, whatever wreckers yards do to poor stolen written off Bessies. All I could salvage were their rubber floor mats. It was a while before I got another car, but I'll always remember Bessie, my first car, and how, through her, I finally found the confidence to drive. Come away with me, and I will write you song. Come away with me. Hello, my name is Louise, and this is my tale to tell. My first car, May 2019, JD5780, or was it JD0578? 1989, it was a red car, a fabulous red four-door escort. There was no power steering and there were only four gears. My parents helped me to find and buy this little 1.2 litre red Ford Escort, I think my mum found the advertisement in the press in the part where the, you could uh, search for the sale of used cars. It was a private sale. My dad and I went to see the car. An elderly gentleman was selling it on behalf of his son. We bought the car. It was a Gentile deal. Life had become easier and safer after getting the Ford Escort. I was in my second year at university. Biking to and from university had become a right pain at night. I would get up early in the morning and head off to art school in my red car. There was always a car park at 8am in the morning and I could work late into the evening and get home safely. My dad taught me how to change the oil, the water, the tyre pressure, the window wiper fluid and to check the spark plugs. The engine in a car of this age was very simple. My dad would often spend time tinkering with the engine. My mum said that she thought he missed the car when it had been sold when I had gone. The car lived outside under a carport, but to look after the engine, my dad taught me to put a sack 
on top of the engine, under the bonnet, to keep the moisture away from the engine. And every morning I would take the sack out from under the bonnet. My friends at the time, Sarah, Elaine and Debbie, and I would hoon around in my wee car. We once went to a fancy dress party wearing big hats, probably looking a bit ridiculous in the escort. Someone we knew had seen us driving around and made a snide comment about how stupid we looked driving around in that red car. What was it to them? Sorry that we weren't insecure enough not to wear our fancy dress out in public. When I left New Zealand, my mum and dad said not to worry about the sale of the car. Dad told me that my mum had cut and polished it beautifully, and the car sold to a young man. There seems to be a bit of power in the red car. The first time I fell in love with something red, it was a pair of shoes. I recently made a pair of red shoes, and they have had a great reception by people. And the red escort, it was a happy, simple car to drive and maintain. One evening I drove up the road to where I lived, leaving a trail of smoke behind me. I had driven to and from university that day, forgetting to take the sack out from under the bonnet. Fire! I never forgot to take the sack out again. The engine in the car wasn't damaged, but you should have seen the look on my father's face. I used to sometimes drive to Akaroa in my wee car. There is a hill somewhere along the Christchurch Akaroa Road where if I got enough speed up going down the hill, the 1.2-litre engine would almost make it to the top without me having to change gear. The number plate was simple. I remember the numbers on the plate, but I'm just not sure about the sequence of them. Then, a few weeks ago, I was driving down Milton Street and I saw the number plate JD0578. A hard-driven Ford Escort pulled out of a street in Sydenham. Now a silver colour. The paintwork had a homemade kind of finish. Look about it. I drew in a short breath. Was that my old car? Thirty years on? Had I just come full circle? The air does a strange thing around you when something goes full circle. I always feel like the air is frozen in a vortex as time, place and subject connect. Odd, unconnected threads all synchronising at the same time. These moments feel like the past, nodding to your present that your life has been what it was, but that you are not bound to these moments of the past. These connections feel like being given permission to remember who you were then, what your life was like at the time, and to see your life for what it is now. But the numbers on the number plate remain dyslexic. They move around, refusing to settle in their legal order. The question of was that my old car remains unanswered. My Tale to Tell is produced by me, Stephanie Fruin, and engineered by Peter Rattray at Plains FM Christchurch. The theme tune was composed by Louise Ayling and performed by Louise Ayling, Peter Royal and Stephanie Fruin. If you'd like to take part in My Tale to Tell, contact mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. No life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. Memories of our lives Echoes of our days Sunshine of the past Shadows from where we lay
你。